Good evening. I'm Axis. I'm Loner. And you're listening to The Late Night, a horror podcast. Welcome back, everyone. It's May, and the world outside has changed quite a bit since our April episode dropped. Hopefully, you're all either cozy indoors listening to us, or if you're outside, you're only out there because you need to be. Either way, we hope you're all safe. Axis and I recorded a COVID-19 episode in case anybody wants to hear what we've been up to during this crisis. And tonight, in the spirit of isolation, we're celebrating the 40th anniversary of Stanley Kubrick's The Shining from 1980, and we'll be following that with Mike Flanagan's sequel to The Shining, Dr. Sleep 2019. We'll be right back after the tone. Stay tuned. Yeah, it'd be good to open up my Shining notes, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, maybe open up yeah, your notes. Okay. So, well, um, for those who don't know me, uh, I run a little writing workshop uh, called Fret Club, and sometimes I interview the workshop's participants on the books that they enjoy most, and uh, I don't think it's really much of a surprise that Stephen King's third book, The Shining, published in 1977, uh, almost always comes up. How do you feel about the book, or have you read the book? Oh, no, I have not read the book. Okay. Um, <laughs> I have, no, I, I've never read any Stephen King, which is ironic, considering that I live in his backyard. Actually, I um, I watched Doctor Sleep with my mom the first time I screened it, um, and afterwards she, well, first she said, it's just another film about single single mothers, which I think is, is apt, but then she just talked about how frequently she walks her walks our dog behind Stephen King's house, and I'm like, oh. He's yep, yep, that sounds that sounds right. Nice and cozy. Yeah. Um, but no, this was the first time for me watching The Shining and watching Doctor Sleep. Have not read either of them, so I was really I can't say I was going in blind because it's so culturally pervasive at this point that I, I feel like you can't exist and go on the internet without knowing some of the basics of uh, of The Shining. But I was as blind as you can be, I think, going mm-hmm. in, which kept things exciting <laughs> so you're saying that not reading the book was a plus then in this case i, I actually agree i think so yeah i think so um I, for a couple of reasons a i don't want to say it's i will not i'm not saying that the shining is not a good movie i think it is a good movie it is a bit of a slog to get through <laughs> um and it's just it felt miserable the whole way through which i think is an intentional choice but let me tell you if i had read the book to prep for this and i read the whole book and watched the movie twice i think i'd be a lot more depressed right now Mm. um so i'm glad in that sense and then also i tend to be a stickler for um for movies or media matching up with their book and their source material Mm -hmm. (laughs) and given the intense differences that i know there are between the book of the shining and the film of the shining i think i probably would have spent a lot more time watching the movie being like no (laughs) no that's not right um so probably for the best that i came in with a clean slate at 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 the movie all right um yeah i agree i think that those who I know who actually read the book before they went in and saw the film uh, very much had that reaction that they were that they were very much nitpicking on what worked and what didn't and mm-hmm. and what matched up and you're right 
um, you know, between Rosemary's Baby and uh, John Carpenter's The Thing, uh, both of those films followed their source material much more closely uh, than most other horror films do adaptions. Uh, a good example of when one really screws the pooch uh, doing an <laughs> adaption, uh, I would say Dean Koontz's Phantoms uh, and Anne Rice's The Queen of the Damned are, are two fantastic examples of when you don't follow the source material closely and then it gets screwed up. So um, I'm with you on that. Yeah, I just, I mean, I think that The Shining as a film clearly has a lot of merits in its own right. Um, and there are some, some of the changes that I've heard about, I think, make it in some ways a more interesting movie. Like, Because obviously not everything from a book plays well into a film. But I tend to be somebody that if there are going to be major changes from the source material, I want to see them really well justified. And some I think were, some I think were not. Right. I mean, so did you Wikipedia the book at all, or did you read any of the- Oh, yeah, okay. yeah. I mean, I've read a lot of kind of comparisons looking specifically at what Stephen King thought right. of The Shining, the movie, um, and looking at some of some of the differences. I certainly don't have a comprehensive knowledge, but I've, I've heard plenty of bits and pieces mm-hmm. at this point. Well, the, the thing that made it hard to adapt to screen years ago that I forgive Kubrick for is something like the topiary animals that were in the book, yeah. right? There was no way in the 70s and the 80s that you were ever <laughs> going to fucking get, unless you wanted it to look like Gumby, um, you were going to get topiary animals um, in The Shining. And and Kubrick was somebody who just agonized over everything, having the perfect shot, mm-hmm. right? Um, he even built, you know, rigs and gurneys and other things just to get just the perfect shot and yeah um i think even even the scenes where he was shooting daniel lloyd uh, on his tricycle or his big wheel um (laughs) he was you know he had another he had another gentleman in a in a sort of wheelchair um following danny around uh but you know on the first day the wheels on that you know, chair blew out so that they had to switch them out with harder tires. But it's it's just like, it shows that Kubrick was somebody who was very, very, very attentive to how he did his shots. And so... Oh, to say the least. Yeah, so <laughs> his, his approach, you know, getting rid of the topiary animals in lieu of a maze, I thought was cool. But where, mm-hmm. where I completely disagree with him... Um is on his alteration of Jack Torrance's character. That's yes. that's the big one where I think he he dropped the ball. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's something that I mean, again, I found out about kind of after watching the movie. Mm-hmm. Um and I think having a more nuanced Jack Torrance would have made this a much more compelling movie for me. Yeah. Um I think part of the reason that I found it kind of difficult is there are no bright points in the movie there is no moment i feel like there's no real moments of uh you know of anybody 
enjoying each other's company, of having a nice family unit, of having any of those things that really raise the stakes. So because I feel like if you get to see them being a family, if you get to see a Jack who really cares about his son and cares about that family kind of environment and feels like a normal, I don't, you know, I hesitate to say normal, but uh, like a good dad, then it makes it so much more disturbing when you see his kind of fall from that mm -hmm. and his descent into this mania mm -hmm. um, because you're presented with more to lose. Precisely. And it also just, it makes you care more. Like I, I didn't have a single moment in the movie where I liked Jack or I felt bad for Jack. But if he had been painted as a more sympathetic character, I think that would have been a much more compelling journey for him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I was also interested, too, in how they switched around Wendy's character. Um, because I actually, I really liked Shelley Duvall in this. I, I loved her performance. I... But a lot of the critiques I've heard are that she, well, particularly Stephen King thought she was a bit of a, you know, wet blanket. She just kind of cried the whole time. And he said she didn't have much of a backbone, which I think is not true. Clearly, she like she did a lot of shit in this movie to save her son from utterly impending doom. Um, but that kind of vulnerability, I think I enjoyed personally. I thought it lended a certain lent a certain soft touch to it, which I enjoyed. I liked seeing seeing her be this gentle character and having that kind of, um, like, the chutzpah it took for her to survive in the end, having that brought out of her, I thought was an interesting turn of events. But Yeah, they're not, they're not all going to be. And I will say, in, in, in Duvall's defense, um, they're not all going to be Sidney Prescott and Laurie Strode. It's it's something where they're all, there's always going to be characters where they're going to need to have a certain amount of vulnerability to have a certain amount mm -hmm. of realism when it comes to the film. So Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think it made sense in a way. I feel like the way they portrayed Wendy is the way that you had to do it when you were portraying Jack in the way that they did. Because if you had a Jack who was like we were talking about, a more nuanced character, I think it could make sense for him to have a more strong-willed kind of wife. But this Wendy makes more sense to me as somebody who would have been willing to put up with his behavior for longer, who would be more attentive to Jack, more willing to try to appease him. And that makes more sense in the timeline of, you know, how long she stays by his side for regardless of the shit she has to put up yeah. with. And I mean, and I think that's just it. The horror in this case is not the hotel, but it's a domestically abusive relationship. And I think yeah. that that is uh, brilliantly executed by the both of them. I think Nicholson mm -hmm. does a great job of playing a complete asshole. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, <laughs> and that is, that's the big difference between the novel and the film. Right. Mm -hmm. The big difference is that Jack Torrance as a loving father who's struggling with alcoholism uh, is is basically sacrificed so that we can spend time with Jack Nicholson as a charismatic, unreliable narrator who everybody's afraid of. Yeah. But again, not because it's a haunted hotel, but because there's this very strong overtone of a very uh, abusive husband, father figure um, who yeah. who definitely was suffering from an acute case of assholeism. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I do think um, that is one of the things that I do really appreciate about the film. Like you keep using the phrase unreliable narrator. And I think that is so true to life. In many of the cases I've seen with people who are abusers, 
Like, I think it really paints a, an accurate portrait of how those kind of people can almost gaslight themselves and mm-hmm. convince themselves that they are not the villain in their own story. Mm-hmm. Um, and so seeing how he kind of constructs his own reality is really interesting to watch. And it is, I think, to me, the most horrifying part of the whole thing is, you know, Jack's own mentality. It's not it's not all the ghosts in the hotel, although they're glorious in their own right. But it's that all of this stuff was kind of latent in his own personality and in his own mind and didn't take too much to pull it out of him. All right. My kind of big thing is that there's a lot of people get really pissed off about the fact that this change was made. Right. And then a lot of fans, they feel like they have to make this fucking decision between the book and the film, Uh, like (laughs) as if as like as if you're like making some sort of huge life choice. Um, And I don't believe in shaming anybody for loving something that entertains them. Um, Yeah, of course. So I love but I think it's totally fine to love the book and the movie, Um, even though even though the book and the movie are two different animals. Right. Right. I mean, like I was saying, as somebody who is very fussy about kind of reliable adaptation Mm -hmm. um there are definite exceptions to that rule it's really interesting because some of my all-time favorite movies are movies that are incredibly different from the source material and if it's done intentionally and with purpose which i think in in many ways the shining was then it can be really fantastic like um my favorite of the Harry Potter series is Prisoner of Azkaban, which I think is unquestionably the most different from the book. It is both my favorite book and my favorite movie for entirely different reasons. And the same thing, another one of my favorite movies, Howl's Moving Castle. Loved the book as a kid, still think it's a great book. The movie is so different, so different, but you almost have to dissociate them in some ways, I think, and view them each as a separate piece of work. And in and then I think it's easier to really appreciate them both as kind of pieces of art in their own right. right. I mean, the only person where I'm kind of unhappy with is, uh, you know, Stanley Kubrick, because I understood oh. that. I mean, if you go back and you look at the documentaries and there's several, you know, Rodney Asher's Room 237 is a good example of a, of a solid documentary on it. Um, and there's there's other documentaries. I mean, you can even find them on YouTube. So there's lots of DVD extras. And I understood that. You know, Kubrick saw the book as unashamedly mystical. Uh, but, mm-hmm. you know, in my early 20s, learning about those alterations between the book and the film, um, between one artist's canon and another's interpretation, I have to say I very much sympathize with King. And to this day, yeah. I, I still have no idea what Kubrick was thinking. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it is very accurate where, uh, you know, King was basically saying, like, why did you bother buying the rights to my book if you were going to change it so much? And I can't understand that. Like, well, to see something kind of bastardize your own that, work so and much. And that's something that's always stuck with me is because Kubrick did almost the exact same thing back in 1971 with Tony Burgess um, when he filmed A Clockwork Orange. So I, mm-hmm. I still wonder whether or not King had known that and whether or not that would have had an impact on yeah. his decision. That that always really sticks with me because, and you know... I've watched the movie now probably over a hundred times and, and, you know, I always think the same things, you know, whenever I sort of drift off while I'm watching it, because it's definitely a movie you can drift off too, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. <laughs> so soothing. <laughs> so. Yeah. Uh, something about that, just that cold mountain air lulls you right to sleep, I'm sure. <laughs> I mean, on a lighter note, King doesn't have the best relationship with Hollywood. 
Um, if anybody's curious as to what it looked like when Stephen King sat in a director's chair, uh, you can go watch Maximum Overdrive from 1986. I will not get into what the box office to budget is on that one, uh, but I will say that Rock Bottom Remainders ain't just a band. Uh, if you follow, if you follow <laughs> film awards, that won two Razzies. The first was Stephen King in the category of worst director, and the other was uh, for Emilio Estevez for worst actor. Uh, so, oh, buddy. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I love Stephen, but yeah, some people, some people are not meant to direct, and I think it's, I think it's hard when you branch out and you try to make such a big splash right away. Like, I feel like if you're gonna start directing, you've got to start small. Like, find your local one act festival and try it <laughs> yeah. out a little bit before you kind of hit the big. Maybe time. <laughs> direct a kindergarten play or something. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, honestly, as somebody who's done a shit ton of community theater, I think that is the brilliant move to do. Once you can direct children and produce a functional piece, I think that that sets you up for success in the long term, because that's got to be harder than directing a lot of Hollywood actors. No, agreed. <laughs> I mean, but yeah. the moral I took away from King's disappointment with the filming of The Shining is that if you want to be a horror author and if you want to publish and you want your books to become horror movies, then just like any other sort of artist, unless you're rich enough to fund and distribute it all by yourself, you're very likely going to have to make compromises. And yeah. after learning that as an artist, you know, I don't think there's been a time where I've watched The Shining where I didn't feel bad for King. Uh, but now that's all past tense because Dr. Sleep happened. So Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Clearly, I, I, Dr. Sleep to me really shows that Stephen King, like, I don't want to say learned his lesson because I don't want to say it's, you know, his fault, but <laughs> he learned very much what he had done and he waited until he was damn well ready to let it be done right. Yeah. I, I mean, I applaud both Mike Flanagan and Stephen King for Dr. Sleep. And because I think that they did something that we've, we've never really seen before, which is a very smooth transition, you know, from a classic mm -hmm. horror film to a modern horror film and it really feels like you know i mean we watched them we watched them one day after another did you really feel a, a noticeable bump and shift and change in tone even like no no um, and i find that so impressive because that is such a hornet's nest to walk into yeah. as a director the idea of producing dr sleep in a way that can satisfy stephen king but also gives reverence to the shining as a film like that is such a thorny kind yeah. of thing to navigate and i was hugely impressed with it because i think it it's a movie that has much more modern sensibilities um and which is probably part of why I enjoyed it a hell of a lot more. Um, but at the same time, felt very in universe with The Shining. Um, it made sense. It just felt right as a kind of next step and a very satisfying conclusion to it. Right. I mean, for those who are not familiar with his work, Mike Flanagan, um, I would like to suggest uh, his adaption of The Haunting of Hill House, or as I like to call mm -hmm. it, Where's Waldo? The Never Fucking Sleep Again edition. Um, <laughs> so I think that Mike Flanagan, um, you know, is is definitely going to be someone we should keep our eye on for quite some time because I think he's going to yeah, bring a lot yeah, more stuff. Yeah, I absolutely. I was so impressed with the work he did. I was so impressed with the crew he put together. Like, there's so many talented elements. I'm also, okay, I will say right off the bat, I am so glad that Ewan McGregor was cast for this movie. Me too. I love Ewan McGregor. Just, he is near and dear to my heart as an actor and seeing him in this role, incredible. 
But it is so amazing that they, they, the list of people they considered for this role, fascinating, especially given like how we've talked about the casting of Jack Torrance, uh-huh. the casting of, J- of Danny Torrance, fascinating. Um, so they also considered Dan Stevens <laughs> of um, Downton Abbey and Beauty and yeah, the Beast yeah. fame. Um, Chris Evans, good old Captain America. Like what a high quality cast with prospects. No shade to Matt Smith and Jeremy Renner, who were also in the running, but had less personal attachment to. But, um, like, so many great actors. But now I'm just imagining Captain America as, running as through this whole movie. No. And I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, a little, it seems a little too clean cut. That's like if Harrison Ford had been cast as as, as Jack Torrance, right? Shit. I think about that. Like, after I read the fact that... Don't worry, though. We get that when we get to What Lies Beneath, where we get to that... <laughs> No, no, Andy, yeah. why? Yeah. It's fucking awesome. So Yeah, no, but Ewan McGregor, such a champ during this movie. I, I really, I loved a lot of the cast for this. Um, Kylie Curran, mm-hmm. um, who plays Abra, such Amazing. a powerhouse. Like, so incredible to watch her work. And I just, as somebody who did a lot of child acting and has seen a lot of child actors... I think it's really taught me to appreciate good child actors, which are rare to find. Um, and she was such just a star during this in a way that I appreciated so much. I don't think there was a minute of wasted screen time with her. I think yeah. everything that she did, I don't think there was a minute of wasted screen time in that cut at all. Absolutely. I mean, but but Abra, like it was tight and Abra just like brought the fucking pain like every time because they're you know they're talking about there's two things that are coming up that everybody's talking about. The first thing is that you know they're considering doing a a another sequel to Doctor Sleep with Abra. And I, th- I keep thinking, oh, my God, that would be like Kill Bill 3 with having Beatrix Kiddo's yeah. kid grown up and, and being like, you know, being a powerhouse. I'd love to see that. Um, the other one is that HBO uh, via The Hollywood Reporter, and we'll post the link in the comments, um, recently announced that HBO is going to be doing a 10-episode miniseries uh, about the Overlook Hotel, just called Overlook um, and it'll be about the the prequel to The Shining, which is the thing that I've been wanting to see for exactly. years. I could not believe that because when I was writing up my notes for this kind of discussion, it was like the day after we watched the movie, I opened IMDb and like the first breaking news article was like, Overlook Hotel House series happening right after we had talked about how much we wanted it. <laughs> and it's like the, the universe read our minds. Yeah, and part of me yeah. wants to see. Part of me wants them to be very serious. But if they end up fucking it up, I really want Jimmy Duvall to be in the bear suit for some reason. I want, <laughs> I want Frank the Bunny as as like Benny the Bear. I really want something amazing. If if there's, you yeah. Know. So I don't know. I'm. I think I'm cautiously optimistic. I mean, we've got J.J. Abrams as a producer and a bunch of the uh, production team of Castle Rock coming in. So I think I really hope they have directs. like really hope Flanagan oh. directs. That would be fucking amazing. Yeah. That's that's what I want to see. Who knows? But I think it's an exciting time for it to happen. I think it's got a lot of potential. And to flesh out so much of the, the stuff you see implied in The Shining, it's just, it's a very satisfying prospect to me. Right. <laughs> I mean, overall, I think that there's going to be a lot of great things that come out of that franchise. And I think that, you know, it's one of the few times where I can say 
cautiously, <laughs> uh, I look at yeah. the horizon with optimism. <laughs> it's something you will rarely, fans, you will rarely ever hear me say, I look at the horizon cautiously with optimism. <laughs> Usually it's the land has been beveled and we are going into a shit show that spirals <laughs> downward. But yeah, I will this. say that does seem uh, slightly out of character with the, the Mona I know, yeah. but <laughs> it's a, a fun, refreshing change. <laughs> I sound like the manic, depressed robot from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It's like, <laughs> oh, Marvin. Right, Marvin. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. but yeah, when it comes to this, yeah. when it comes to this property, I've I got a good feeling about it, and you know, knock, yeah. knock on wood, but uh, we'll see what happens. Yeah, and absolutely. Like, I'm excited for the potential of that. And I hope it takes some lessons from Dr. Sleep as well, yeah. because that, I think, was just so stellar. And I think one of the things that I really liked about Dr. Sleep is I have a, a lesson kind of that I have learned for myself of what will make me enjoy television or movies and stuff. Because I like a lot of dark murder mysteries and stuff like that. But there are so many that I just can't get into. Like, they seem like they're right. They seem like they're up my alley. And I sit down and I try to watch them. I'm like, oh, I am not enjoying myself. And after all of this reflection, I finally realized that I just need somebody in the movie to be friends. Right. Which sounds like such a a silly kind of rule. But when you have a movie where everybody's antagonistic the entire time, where there's nobody who really likes each other, where there's no union, there's nothing good to hold on to the rest of everything doesn't matter. If it's just all a miserable slog, I have no investment. But Dr. Sleep has such strong core relationships at the root of it. I mean, there you have all of these amazing relationships between Ewan and Abra, between um, Danny and Billy, between all of these people who really care about each other. So one, there is something to lose. And two, there is something to look forward to because you care about these people. You care about what happens to them and they care about what happens to each other. Um, And that's something I just appreciated so much in Dr. Sleep, and I think made it a much more pleasant movie to watch (laughs) in a lot of ways. Agreed. Totally agree. I mean, the only thing, the only thing is with that rule is I I wonder, so like would Tony and, um, would Tony and Danny count then in your (laughs) friend's dynamic? Okay. Well, I... Or, in general, or what about like I a friend of me? Because that's what Tony feels like. I would to say me. probably not. It didn't. It didn't hit in the same way that a wholesome friendship does. But I definitely liked Tony a lot more than you do. <laughs> I fucking hate Tony. <laughs> I know Spoiler you do. Alert, See, I'm like I'm fascinated. The... I'm like I'm like Tony's a friend, and Mona is like Tony is Satan. <laughs> yeah, Tony is totally Satan. <laughs> yeah, I I think I have more more sympathy there. Yeah, but in terms of just I think. Um, like I was talking about the kind of the relationships between the characters, it seems in a lot of ways like that was uh, reflected in the relationship between the crew and the movies as well. Sure. Um, Now there is a huge rabbit hole. I could go down in talking about the shining and I'll, I'll just touch on it briefly. Um, So for, for starters, just to clarify my own biases as somebody who's done a fair amount of acting, I am not a huge fan of method acting in general. I think it, It can produce great results, but my biggest problem with it is that you very rarely hear about actors method acting nice characters. 
it's much more often a way for people to get into the mindset of this nasty, twisted kind of character. The biggest exception I found to that rule is uh, Daniel Day-Lewis playing Abraham Lincoln, where he, you know, lived as Lincoln and started signing all of his text messages from good old Abe, which is chronologically disconcerting, but kind of cute. Um, <laughs> but anyway, I do... I feel like when these actors kind of take this opportunity to play these nasty characters, they're rarely doing it in a vacuum. If you're going to lock yourself up and just get in the headspace, sure, but it so often impacts the people working around them, whether that's the cast and crew, whoever it is, it has a broader impact and I think is pretty irresponsible as an actor. Unless everybody has agreed to, you know, be kind of on board with that experiment, it's just an excuse for you to be a dick to the people you're working with in a, in a way that I think is frequently unnecessary. See Tropic Thunder. All of that, yeah, yeah. I mean, see fucking Jared Leto on Suicide Squad. Like, oh my fucking God. It, for real. I just, I can't believe it. Was, it. was it worth it to have made that bad movie and to have plop down a dead pig on a table in front of Oscar winner Viola Davis and see her look at you with derision because, oh my God, I hope it was. We don't have that kind anyway. of time. That's a really no, long no. one. Yeah, it, like I said, a deep rabbit hole. So let's get back to The Shining itself. Um, I swear this is on, on topic. So Jack Nicholson is kind of the, I think, one of the OG champions of method acting in Hollywood. He loves it, espouses it, teaches it, has learned it. That's fine. He, I haven't found a ton of accounts of him doing anything wild on The Shining. I mean, he swung an axe around a lot, and you can see that kind of documentary footage of him psyching himself up for the door scene. I honestly think it's kind of cute. He seems more like a kid psyching himself up at a baseball game right. than anything to me. The The most kind of weird thing is that he only ate cheese sandwiches for weeks during filming because he hated them which philistine but he wanted to make himself more irritable which is like i guess fine if he has the good sense to not let that impact you know his off-screen performance as long as he's still nice to the people he's working with then fine right. but where i take major umbrage with this is how stanley kubrick treated shelley duvall and I think pretty much everybody who has done any kind of research on The Shining itself knows that Shelley Duvall was not treated well on the, you know, on the filming set of The Shining. And I cannot find any accounts of Shelley Duvall herself being a method actor, um, but I'll be damned if she wasn't fucking method acting harder than anybody on the set of this movie. And that is because Stanley Kubrick forced her to. So Kubrick created this environment where she was basically being forced into becoming Wendy. She was isolated. She was alienated from the rest of the cast and the crew. I mean, there's audio of Kubrick recorded saying, don't sympathize with Shelley to the rest of the crew. And he was notoriously cruel to her um, in terms of never giving her any positive affirmations and being harshly critical of her, forcing her to, you know, redo, like, the the scene with a baseball bat is famously 127 shoots for that, um, which seems pretty goddamn unnecessary. Um, but this poor woman, she was crying 12 hours a day in character and also out of character, so much so that she was running out of fluids in her body. She was losing hair from the stress. Nobody was nice to her. All of this was a miserable experience. Miserable. And these are the kinds of decisions that an actor 
could make for themselves if they were choosing to, you know, go down that method acting rabbit hole. If they were saying, I really want to commit to this, I want to become this character, that's one thing. But Shelley Duvall never made that decision and instead was forced to live this lifestyle without ever being given an option, which to me just seems extraordinarily cruel. Um, and she did say, she said, um, the quote I have from her is, from May until October, I was really in and out of ill health because the stress of the role was so great. Stanley pushed me and prodded me further than I've ever been pushed before. It's the most difficult role I've ever had to play. And she does say that she thinks Kubrick pulled, you know, a good performance out of her. But I also would argue that we don't know that she wouldn't have given a good performance on her own right. if she hadn't been abused like this. This this is kind of like, you know, if you want to teach a bear to unicycle, you nail its feet to the pedals and beat the shit out of it. And it's not riding, it's running, you know? That's exactly. kind of what I come away exactly with, which is, which is really savage and yeah. cruel at the end of the day. And I feel so bad for her because there's another quote from her where at the end of this, she said, um, after all that work, hardly anyone even criticized my performance in it, even to mention it, it seemed like the reviews were all about Kubrick like I wasn't there so after you know suffering all of this she then is arguably one of the most forgotten pieces of the movie with so much of a spotlight being shown on Kubrick and on Nicholson and so Kubrick sounds like he's fucking hell to work with you know <laughs> he's you know it was terrible to Shelley Duvall but also obsessive in a way that creates a really difficult environment as somebody who has done uh, you know, I've I've worked on some film shoots. It's re- it can become really exhausting for everybody involved when you're forced into this kind of obsessive cycle of doing things over and over and over and over again. And it is hard to keep up a good camaraderie after yeah. that kind of experience. Mm. Meanwhile, Mike Flanagan, Mike Flanagan, working on Doctor Sleep, by all accounts, such a different filming experience. You mean like a professional one, probably. Yeah. yeah, amazing how that works. So the production of Doctor Sleep has not been as obsessively documented as that of The Shining. Not yet. But every single interview, yeah, not yet. But every single interview I found with the cast and crew has emphasized how kind and supportive they all are, were of each other. Um, in particular, there are several interviews with Kylie Curran where she is so vocal about how sweet, and I quote, sweet is the word she used to describe Ewan McGregor, which just delights me, but talking about how kind both Ewan McGregor and Rebecca Ferguson were to her, which I think is so important, especially given the kind of intimidation factor that's inherent in a young actor working with two really established Hollywood actors. There's just so much nice stuff you hear when these actors and producers and filmmakers talk about each other. And I think you can sum up the whole difference in the process between um, working on Dr. Sleep and working on The Shining. Because when you look at the uh, the axe through the door scene mm-hmm. with Jack kind of, you know, hacking away at the door, Kubrick had to use 60 goddamn doors to get his vision for the scene. The Dr. Sleep team built nine doors just in case, and they only used two. He got it in two shots and was like, yeah, it's perfect. And it was still a great scene. Like, you don't look at that scene in Doctor Sleep and go, oh, something's missing. Instead, you have, you know, a cast and crew who is having their time valued, who is having their performances trusted and valued in their own right. And everybody's happier at the end of the day. And they still made a good goddamn movie. It just seems so much better. Plus... 
Stanley Kubrick made Scatman Crothers cry, and that is punishable by Yeah, seriously. So, that, no. Yeah. No, nobody makes Scatman Crothers cry. Love Scatman Fucking Crothers. just terrible. Did you listen to his, terrible, Did you listen terrible. to that Keep That Coffee Hot song yet? I really love that song. <laughs> Not oh yet, my not God. yet. I, I, will, like, I will put it I on I drive to this. that song every morning now. This whole, these last few weeks, guys, all I've been doing is listening to that song. Because um, I, I had the gonk on loop for about three or four weeks, and then... Um, now I've, I've been listening to Scatman Carruthers. For those who don't know, he had a jazz, uh, a jazz career as well. He was a great singer and he has one song in particular yeah. that I love that's called keep that coffee hot. So, uh, it's yeah. definitely a treat if you guys Absolutely get to amazing. it. Amazing. Yeah. A happier, happier version of, uh, Mr. Halloran. And that's, that's how I, I'd like to Mr. remember. Mr. Halloran him. was pretty happy. I mean, he also knew how to live. Well, yeah. Until he got an ax to the chest. I mean, really? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean. But, you know, if hopefully if he goes, if, if there's another side, right? I mean, clearly we go on, right? Abra said we go on. Oh, uh, yes. Abra does say we go I on. I mean, I'd go back to the apartment and, you know, just lay down on the bed and have those two paintings on either side of me again. It's just, it's like, yeah, man. <laughs> yeah. King's throne right there. Keep enjoying your house. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know it is. It is interesting. Given we talked a little bit in the uh, in the watch along about how one of the first conversations Kubrick had with King when he made the made The Shining was that conversation about um, how uh, the, the kind of implication of death and what that entailed. And King was like, "Well, I mean, obviously, aren't you like people are afraid of hell?" And Kubrick just goes, "Oh, well, I don't believe hell exists." And so then. No, he. There was a long pause. Is like I don't believe in hell. <laughs> it's like <laughs> yeah. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for giving it the panache it needed. Um, but it is kind of funny to me having in The Shining these like vague allusions to like what could be happening. This purgatory of ghosts, and then we come to Doctor Sleep, and they're just these like happy ghosts. Mister Halloran and you and McGregor just chilling. Come and say hi. <laughs> I'm like, oh, this is a different version of the the afterlife than I I was worried about after watching The Shining. And the world's most awesome cat as the Grim Reaper. (laughs) Oh my god, Azzy, Azzy the cat, just truly, I mean, we've seen some champion cats in the run of this show so far, but I think Masuka has a special place in my heart. Oh, Masuka. Masuka is a star. Azzy, Azzy, I think, has some of that same star quality, though. Uh, um, <laughs> just sits there on the bed. Just... Guess what? You're going to die soon. <laughs> yeah, I think it's really accurate for a cat to be an omen, just of such intense foreshadowing. Like, that feels right to me. <laughs> yeah. Mm, beautiful. Love to see it. Yeah, so uh, Bonkers the Cat is the, the name of the actual cat owned by the, the Newton brothers, as far as I can tell, who they brought onto set to play the young version of Azzy the Cat. They did use two different cat actors for the pre-eight-year time jump and post-eight-year time jump Azzy, but the young one is, is Bonkers the Cat, who is apparently accurately named um, based on the descriptions of him on set. There are there are kind of fun anecdotes you can find of the the cast being like, oh my god, this cat just bouncing around. <laughs> so I do wonder, I, I think it took them quite a few takes to get the kind of statuesque, uh, refined Stoic kind cat. of version yeah. of him that you see in the film. <laughs> 
But I think they still picked well because, my God, if that is not the most beautiful goddamn cat. Yeah, I can't really imagine being a director taking a little laser pointer and then getting the kitty on the bed, you know? It's like, (laughs) hop on the dead man's legs, honey. I have never considered the utility of laser pointers with cat actors, but that is a hugely good point. I want royalties. If you're directing here, I want royalties. Now. Yeah, I want I want royalties, and uh, my rider includes seven laser pointers and a whole bunch of yum yums. <laughs> um, I normally don't watch The Shining alone, and uh, I don't watch it alone in winter. And one of the bigger reasons for that is the incredibly creepy music. Um, yeah. There are many who feel that horror movies are carried by music. Uh, I agree with that sentiment and feel that the music reinforces the fear when viewing The Shining or Doctor Sleep. Um, the musical ensemble for The Shining was a myriad of conductors and composers, including Wendy Carlos, Georgi Ligeti, Bela Bartok, uh, Christophs uh, Penderecki, and uh, several Philharmonic orchestras. Um, <laughs> Forty years later, it's still an intimidating collection. Um, and, yeah. I, and I do think it's a shame that it never got a proper, complete release when the film first mm-hmm. dropped. Um, mm-hmm. But bridging the gap between Flanagan and Kubrick are the very talented Newton brothers, Andy Grush and Taylor Newton Stewart. Uh, no relation. Um, the music was fantastic because even though we'd moved forward in time by 40 years, we were very definitely still in the same world. And Yeah, absolutely. We mentioned that there wasn't really much of a skip between one movie and the other movie, and the Newton brothers definitely should take a, a lot of the credit for that um, because it was their their epic score that really tied mm-hmm. all of that together. Yeah, I think they did such an incredible job with the music. Like, I really felt like um, they created a, a soundtrack that felt contemporary, that felt suspenseful, but pulled in so many musical elements from the original. Yeah. Like, there are all these moments when I was watching Doctor Sleep that I would be listening to these beautiful, sweeping kind of orchestral moments, and just you would catch, like, a hint of that original main theme from The Shining yeah. coming through, or just, like, in one little moment, and then it would disappear again, and I'd be like, oh my god, there it is! But it feels so evocative. And of course, they didn't forget that uh, iconic heartbeat, which Mm -hmm. came back full force in Dr. Sleep. But they also have this really uh, strong love for unusual instruments, which I think was delightful and was a thrill to see. So they used a couple of really cool instruments to get unique sounds for the leads. Mm So Rose the Hat, her signature sound, as they describe it, is a hurdy-grand, which is literally a 25-foot-long hurdy-gurdy mixed with an uneven kind of skipping heartbeat sound. And, like, looking back, I can be like, well, yeah, I guess so. But I did not imagine somebody playing a 25-foot sound box (laughs) hurdy-gurdy when I was watching Rose the Hat. But it feels right in retrospect. Yeah, definitely. Um, And then Dan's theme is played on a 90-foot wind harp out in San Francisco. It's an instrument literally played by the wind outside of human control, which they thought was a good analog to show how out of control Dan felt. So they, as I understand it, literally composed around recordings of this wind harp playing whatever the hell it damn well felt like based on how the wind blew, (laughs) which I think is so cool. And I love seeing that that kind of innovation, which honestly I think feels... On brand, I mean, it's innovative in a different way, but looking back at Wendy Carlos, she was such an innovator in many ways. And if you haven't researched her before, I highly recommend it. It's a fun trip. Um, 
She's done, you know, obviously great classic film scores, Clockwork Orange, Shining, Tron, but she was a huge pioneer in the electronic music yeah. world. She helped to create the Moog synthesizer, yep. which was the first commercially available keyboard synth. And she actually won three Grammys for her 1968 album, Switched on Bach, which is Bach's work played on a synth, which I think is a real um, telling sign of the times that you could just play Bach on a synth and win Grammys for it. Um, but obviously was hugely innovative. She was also one of the first uh, public figures in American pop culture to talk really openly about being trans and gender reassignment surgery, which was honestly just an incredibly baller yeah, move at the time pioneer. and paved the way for so many people. Yeah, just hugely interesting. Um, and also just I feel like we have to emphasize uh, Rachel Elkins' contribution as well, who the two of them are credited as uh, co-writers mm -hmm. of the score. Yeah. Um, Elkind was the producer on almost all of Carlos's work and is a, the co-writer on the soundtrack. Um, Carlos herself has talked really has talked publicly about how she thinks Rachel Elkins' um, contributions to her work are really under-recognized yeah. um, and the, the impact that she has on that. Um, but another cool fact about Rachel, her voice was synth synthesized on vocoder for pieces of Carlos's music. She originally wanted to be a jazz singer, but then got turned into a synth voice, which I think is a fun turn of events for, for her. Tron. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, Wendy Carlos saw Tron and was like, well, I'm going to make it real and I'm going to make it in music. <laughs> So really just seems like a, the musical crews on both of these movies, such champs, love to see it. Um, for those who enjoyed these films, I really feel that they work best either on their own or side by side with very few exceptions. Um, however, if you insist on mixing these with other films, Panos Cosmatos is certainly one director whose work has a similar pacing and aesthetic to Kubrick's, uh, especially Beyond the Black Rainbow from 2010. But if you're like me and you can't get enough Shining, uh, again, you know, a few weeks ago, HBO announced uh, via The Hollywood Reporter that it would be doing a 10-episode miniseries called Overlook, based on the history of the Overlook Hotel with J.J. Abrams producing. Although a director hasn't been named yet, personally, and for the sake of continuity, I hope it's Flanagan. Um... Yeah, my, my final thoughts on it are, if Kubrick was alive today, I think that even if he hated the mysticism of the story, and, and we know he would hate the mysticism of the story <laughs> uh, of, of Dr. Sleep, uh, I think he would at least have to appreciate the care and attention to detail that blended his world yeah. and King's into something organic. And, and what makes me really happy about Dr. Sleep's existence is that the horror writer, you know, out of all the other horror writers who have had their work more or less disfigured by hollywood king actually got justice at the end you know we haven't seen anything really for Anne rice and queen of the damned or dean coons and phantoms but you know if if the shining was kubrick saying i'm making this mine uh, you know uh dr sleep is king and flanagan going we'll take that back thank you very much so yep <laughs> yeah yeah and i think it's just such a shining success in again just the ability to pay homage to an author and a director who both made such an iconic piece of work and to really bring it into a modern sense and make a movie that was really fun to watch. Like, I watched this movie like two days in a row, still enjoyed it the second time. Yeah. So thank you, Mike Flanagan. Thank you, Ewan McGregor. <laughs> thank you, Kylie Kerr and everybody involved. And uh, hope you guys enjoyed it. Um, and we do like to talk, you know, about causes. And especially this month, we talked a bit about how... Um, 
how The Shining touches obviously on abuse, family abuse, domestic abuse. And at this point in time, um, especially now that many people are quarantined or isolated, there has been a huge spike in the interaction with domestic violence hotlines. A lot of people are being forced into really close contact with people who might put them in an unsafe situation. So we'd like to kind of just put out the call if you have any ability to support those kinds of domestic violence hotlines or um, domestic violence shelters, now is a great time to do so. So first I wanna point out the National Domestic Violence Hotline, which is a resource in the United States. The web address is thehotline.org. Um, they're accepting donations at this point, but they also have a really great blog forum called Offering Support. You can find it right off their homepage which offers really kind of personal views into how to best support anybody that you may know in your life who is dealing with domestic violence um, and offering resources to help the people, you know, in your own life. And then there is also, I would say, so many different kind of options in terms of both hotlines and shelters. Look up what's available in your area and see what kind of support they might need, whether that might be volunteering as somebody who answers the phone for a hotline or offering resources to shelters, which are in many cases strapped for resources at this point. So that could be cooking a hot meal, that could be giving canned food. Reach out and see what is needed in the area around you and help people stay safe about now. Here's May's horror news. Although Tales to Terrify is currently closed for paid submissions, they are open to flash fiction pieces up to 2,500 words. You can learn more at talestoterrify.com submissions. The Dark is an online magazine that's looking for fiction pieces from 2,000 to 6,000 words. Visit thedarkmagazine.com submission guidelines for more details. And finally, there's Black Static. Visit ttapress.com slash blackstatic for more details. If you're a magazine or press that's interested in having your submissions advertised on the late night, you can write to monerlawrence at hotmail.com. As for the rest of you, keep writing and stay safe. The Late Night, a horror podcast, is brought to you by Moner T. Lawrence. Find us at moneria.com and The Late Night Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.